The reading is taken from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 29, which you can find on page 940 of your church Bibles. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. 
His praise is not from man, but from God. Father in heaven, open our eyes and soften our hearts to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. As we get our bearings on Romans, I want you to imagine that Paul was being serialized in one of our um, broadsheets. You can pick whichever one you want, the Scotsman, the the, um, Times. Just imagine if, if Paul, I don't know how it would happen. I mean, you may be thinking, well, that takes a lot of, inf- a lot of imagination because um, how would a bit of the Bible get that kind of public airing um, here? But, but, but try. Maybe Paul was, a, um, the Apostle Paul, maybe he was school friends with the editor or something. So he gets serialized um, uh, in The Scotsman. And the, the title of his series, the first week, the introductory week, is chapter 1, verse 16. And it will help if you have your Bibles open. So um, page 939. Chapter 1, verse 16 is how Paul introduced himself in this new column. He said, why I'm not ashamed of the Christian message. Why I'm not ashamed of the Christian message. And in that introductory piece, Paul wrote of how the message about King Jesus is God's power to save everyone who believes. And that's why Paul's not ashamed of it. That's why he was very happy to write a number of articles on that topic. Of course, that raises a question, though, doesn't it? Saved? Sorry? Saved? What do you need saving from? Paul, Paul, why does everyone need saving? To which his second article was the answer. So Romans 1, 18 um, to 32, the end of chapter 1, um, was an explanation of why everyone needs salvation. What is the universal problem to which the gospel is a universal solution? And the headline for that one was pretty strong. Just picture those kind of newspaper bold capitals. Evidence shows God is angry at humanity. That was the headline, verse 18. Evidence shows God is angry at humanity. That was a strong headline, but the article was even stronger as you read through it. Um, uh, You can see God's angry at humanity. God's angry at the way we've rejected him and turned to idolatry. And the evidence was the way he hands us over to all manner of immorality. Paul says God hands us over to sexual sin, to verbal sin, to social sin, and to brutal sin. That's the evidence that God is angry. Just look at verse 28 to see that for yourself. Chapter 1, verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It was quite an article. (laughs) 
Just imagine that message sitting on the doormats around Morningside. Every main door flat. Every staircase has got a pile through the door. What kind of reactions do you think we'd get? Or Paul would get? Well, you can find out because you buy today's paper and you flick eagerly to the kind of letters from the, letters from the readers section to find out what, what kind of responses come back. What would you expect to see? I think you'd expect to see a number of letters from people disagreeing with that. They'd be angry letters. Things like this. Dear Sir, how dare you speak of God being angry at idolatry? I like to think of God as nothing but love. Surely God doesn't really mind what people call him or choose to worship. At least that's the only kind of God I'm prepared to believe in. The irony of that particular letter is painful to see. There'd be other angry letters of disagreement. Um, Lots of them would focus on the behavior that Paul mentioned, the things that Paul described in chapter 1 as what ought not to be done, saying that those things are actually perfectly natural. They're perfectly fine. They're not that serious. So, Paul, we, we all lie. Come on. It's not that serious. We're all free to sleep with whomever we want. It's my body. I can do what I like with it. I can sleep with someone I'm not married to. I can sleep with someone of the same sex. It's my body. And as for gossip, (laughs) there's a bit of gossip here and there. Who cares how you treat your parents? Lighten up, Paul. They'd be the letters, if you look at the very end of chapter 1, verse 32, at the very end, those are the letters that give approval to those who practice such things. The truth of God's standards, God's verdict, gets suppressed by this kind of barrage of denial. No way. And desperately, sadly, some of those letters would be signed by church ministers. That's the reason you need to pray for me after my ordination. But actually, the thing for our passage today, the striking thing is that there'd be a load of letters like that, but there'd also be another kind of letter, a letter that was actually pretty positive. People who weren't disagreeing with Paul at all, they'd go a bit like this, and listen carefully um, to this one. Dear sir, thank you for your bold and insightful critique of contemporary culture. I couldn't agree more, and as someone who cares about moral values, both in public life and in my own private sphere, I have been waiting for someone to point this out, to point out the terrible moral deterioration in certain parts of British society for years. Yours sincerely, Mr. Morally Upright. Another one writes along similar lines, Dear sir, I'm a devoted follower of one of the world's great religions, and I'm heavily involved in our charitable and community activities in Edinburgh. I have to say that since I began volunteering, my eyes have been opened to how godless things are in some sections of our society. I'm glad to see this new series finally drawing some attention to this problem. Yours sincerely, Mrs. Religiously Active. What do those two letters have in common? A couple of things, actually. They have in common that they agree with chapter 1, with Paul's diagnosis. And they agree that God is right to be angry. 
angry with how people treat him, how people treat each other. People should not get away with murder. But there's something else, something more sinister that they have in common, which is they are a sidestep. Both of those letters are a sidestep. They sidestep Paul's God-given analysis of humanity in chapter 1. They agree, hey, this is true of others, absolutely, but it's not true of me. So they watch the TV news, and they say, yeah, Paul, plenty of evidence. Humanity is guilty. God should be angry about how people treat people. And then comes the crucial, dangerous thought, thank goodness I'm not like that. (laughs) At least I'm not as bad as them. I almost entitled this introduction, um, Two Ways to Wriggle. Because those letters are both wriggling. They're, They're wriggling out of God's verdict. But Paul's going to allow no sidestep. In this section of Romans, he's determined to destroy any excuse from that verdict. The conclusion he's building to is chapter 3, verse 10. Just have a look at that. We've heard it before this morning already. Chapter 3, verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. And then in chapter 3, verse 23, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one's righteous. There are no exceptions to chapter 1's description. The reason the gospel message offers salvation to everyone is because everyone needs salvation. The reason the gospel offers righteousness to everyone is, is because everyone is unrighteous. We're in desperate trouble. At judgment, every excuse will fall flat. Every mouth will be stopped. And so Paul, knowing that, has to write a detailed reply to Mr. Morally Upright and Mrs. Religiously Active. That's what chapter 2 is. And it is detailed and long. So so brace yourselves. There's going to be some hard work, some hard thinking this morning. Not all of my sermons will be this long, I promise. Um, but, But as we work through carefully seeing Paul's answers to Mr. Morally Upright, um, I trust and pray that we will be persuaded that there is no one righteous, no exception to chapter 1. So, Paul's first target, and we'll spend much more time on point 1. There's a handout with an outline if you want on the service sheet. Number 1, dear Mr. or Mrs. Morally Upright, you're in trouble too. You can see who Paul is addressing um, in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, to verse 1, every one of you who judges... And 2 verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Paul's first target here is a good person. A good person. A good person who's not a Christian. Someone who does not think they're guilty enough for God to judge them. Because, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. And I'm expecting there will be a few people like this inside the building this morning. A few of us, actually. This isn't a cartoon. This is real people. And a few of them may be here. But I know for sure there are tens of thousands of people like this around the building. Outside the building. So it's important we understand what Paul would say. Mr. Morally Upright. 
Let's dive into verses 1 to 4. And you'll see that the first point is that, dear Mr. Morally Upright, you may excuse yourself, but God doesn't and won't. As I read verses 1 to 3, just listen out for why God won't excuse this person. Verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So, Mr. Morally Upright, you agree these things are wrong. You say people shouldn't get away with murder. God should do something about that. Here's your problem. You do those things yourself. I do not. How, how dare you say that to me? I, I, I've never had an affair. I've, I've never violently attacked someone. Uh, I'm generous. I'm generous with my friends. Uh, I'm definitely not ruthless, not, not even at work. Paul says, you're sidestepping. And you do. Verse 1, you the judge practice the same things. Verse 3, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself. So yeah, okay, you may not be aware of doing every crime on the list in chapter 1. Although Jesus did teach that indulging thoughts about or looks towards someone you're not married to that are lustful is the same, it's equivalent to adultery by God's righteous standard. So, so actually by God's standard, you're probably more guilty, you tick more boxes than you think. But, but even, if, even if you can say, I haven't done everything on the list... You have done some of the things on the list, Mr. Morally Upright. Who can say? Who of us can say we've never lied, never coveted, never spoken about someone unkindly behind their back? And remember, in chapter 1, those are just the symptoms. Those are the symptoms. In fact, those are the things God's handed us over to The root cause, the prime crime, if you like, was idolatry. The prime crime was not allowing God to be God, not worshipping him as God, not not accepting his rule in every area. So we've all done that. If you've got some of the symptoms, you have the disease. You can't sidestep this one, Mr. Morally Upright. So, So Mr. Morally Upright thinks for a moment. Okay, Paul. Say that's right. Say that I am unrighteous and so God's really angry with me. Well, how come my life is going pretty well? I mean, I totally agree. Some people in our society, they do go off the rails. Maybe they hate God. They certainly mistreat other people. And their lives do become a mess. I can understand God is angry with them. but, But you should come around our flat in the Grange. It's lovely. Got a lovely family. My wife and I were getting on pretty well. And the kids, the kids are polite. They're lovely. Everything's fine. We're we're doing fine. We're having a happy, happy life. There's certainly no sign of kind of major wrongdoing and, and definitely no sign that God is angry with us. Paul says, verse 4, Or do you presume 
on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So if you've not been handed over to the full consequences of rejecting God and his rule, if your life hasn't fallen apart, that's God's kindness to you. But don't presume, therefore, that everything's okay, that there's, there's kind of no issue. In fact, it's actually the opposite. Verse 5, just look at verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You may not be feeling the full force of God's anger now, but Paul says you will then. In fact, every day that you ignore this warning, this warning that you're in trouble, that you need salvation from Jesus, that you don't match God's standards, every day you you suppress that truth, you you say, I'm not going to accept God's verdict, it is storing up more of God's anger. Now, I know God's anger is not a popular topic in our culture, and we need to understand it rightly. We thought last night, last week, that God's anger is not kind of flying off into a fit of rage. It's not kind of petulant. It's not, it's not like a toddler who needs a nap. It's not a whim. It doesn't come and go. No, look actually at how verse 5 describes this day of wrath. This day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That day is a day when God's burning, perfect purity comes into contact with human unrighteousness. And when that happens, wrath. Wrath, proportional wrath, is is what that day will be characterized by. You see, in the face of our world, God cannot be indifferent. He doesn't read the news and give a shrug. I woke up this morning, I don't know if you look at the news on your phone, that, often that's the first thing I do, um, and I woke up to the news of an 88-year-old woman who was violently beaten in her bed by a thief, it's in Chorley, a thief who wanted money. Just imagine if God shrugged at that. <laughs> humans will be Humans. It's actually a disgusting thought, a God without wrath. A God who never judges is the God who never cares. Sometimes people will say, I believe in a God of love, therefore there cannot be a judgment day. I won't believe in that. But, but it's actually nonsense thinking like that. I know we're all tempted to, but it's nonsense. Because if God loves that 88-year-old woman in Shirley, whose face he made... He's not just going to sit by and say, he doesn't watch evil and smile. He doesn't watch evil and shrug. He watches evil and meets it with proportional wrath, burning righteousness, just fury. To which I think a, a Mr. Morally Upright would say, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I can agree that God is right to be angry about old ladies being beaten. 
That's horrendous. I agree with you, Paul. God should do something about that. But surely this wrath and this fury, it's a bit over the top for lying. It's too, it's too much for envy. Surely God can overlook some of those things. Surely God can cut a bit of slack. Maybe he can factor in our kind of good behavior in other areas. Well, Paul says no, verses 6 to 11, because God is an utterly impartial judge. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. The day of judgment will be a day of absolute and perfect justice. Verse 11 says, God shows no partiality. You see, Mr. Morally Upright, and all of us do this naturally, Mr. Morally Upright is a judge who shows partiality. He's biased. He's kind of bent towards self-justifying. So he'll always excuse the things that he knows he's done. Those crimes can't be serious because I've done them. (laughs) So we are rightly shocked at an 88-year-old being beaten. But we're wrongly numb about the seriousness of deceit and slander and pride and idolatry. Whereas God shows no partiality. So then, um, imagine on, on Judgment Day a, a great dividing line being put through humanity. Imagine a kind of big auditorium, bigger than this, but um, uh, maybe it has a huge aisle down the center, a bit like that. So imagine we're there on the final day, the divine court. How many seats do you think the maps will need to put on either side of the aisle? On the left side, verse 7, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So on my left, those with consistent God-centered behavior can sit there and they can await the eternal life that they deserve, the glory and the honor of verse 10. But on the other side of the aisle, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. That's a terrifying description. That's the fate of everyone on this side of the aisle. Those who live for number one, those who suppress the truth, will face fury. This description actually has had me in tears for some of my friends. And the reason I was in tears is because this whole section makes it very clear that apart from Christ, every single human being will be over here. Don't need to set chairs on that side of the aisle. Because remember where we're headed, 3 verse 10, none is righteous, not even one. Remember where we started, 1 verse 18, God's angry at the unrighteousness of humanity, or 1 verse 29, Um, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil. 
faced with the impartial, absolute justice of that day, the justice of verses 7 to 10, no one can say, well, I think I consistently fall into the doing good, God-centered life. Of course, Mr. Morally Upright would have tried to grab a seat on that side, but God's perfect justice, as it judges the secrets of his heart, would have moved him across. It's utterly impartial. At this point, Mr. Morally Upright is looking a bit more shaken. But he's got one last try, one last sidestep up his sleeve. It's verse, uh, it, it moves us on to verses 12 to 13. And, and the final sidestep is this. Hang on, hang on, hang on. How can God punish me when I didn't know the rules? I don't even own a Bible. Never been to church. How is it fair this so-called just God is going to hold me accountable when I didn't know what his law said? Well, verses 12 to 16, Paul says, you may not have had access to God's full law like the Jews did in the Old Testament, but you still had a God-given conscience, a sense of right and wrong. In fact, I can prove you had one because you used it to pass judgment on other people. That's why you were so willing to sit some of humanity over this side of the aisle. Your moral compass works for others. Just look at verse 12. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's the headline for these few verses. Everyone has failed to obey what they know of God's standards. Whether that's the Jews, who knew a lot of God's standards in the Old Testament law, or Mr. Morality, who had a God-given sense, a conscience sense of God's standards and still failed to live to them. So verses 14 to 15, the fact that non-Jews who don't have the scriptures sometimes still demonstrate good behavior is proof that there is a God-given conscience. And if you look around kind of global cultures, it is is really striking, actually. Evidence for what Paul's saying is striking, that um, uh, humanity often do have a kind of similar sense of what's right and wrong, a sense that we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. Many, many, many people agree we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. And yet none of us do, consistently, all the time. So there's no excuse. Mr. Morally Upright sometimes goes with his conscience and his thoughts will excuse him, but there are other times when he denies it and his thoughts will accuse him on that day. There's a terrible day of reckoning, verse 16. God's perfect justice will expose the secrets. So then there's, there's no excuse and there's no sidestep. Last week we um, heard that God's creation is enough to render someone guilty. Robin said, the Pentland Hills, that view, is enough to render Morningside guilty. And the stars do it by night. But there's two reasons. There's the fact that someone bigger than me made the world. And there's the fact that I have a sense of right and wrong. God-given creation and God-given culture Sometimes we'll ask 
ourselves the question, what about the cultures and the people who have never heard, who've never had access to the Bible, to Christian truth? Paul would say, well, there's actually no culture and no human being who's never heard the voice of creation and the voice of conscience. That is, everyone has heard enough and ignored enough and then sinned enough to be held to account before their holy creator. No one's righteous, not even one. So that means the only question for the unreached people of the globe and of Edinburgh is whether they'll hear the answer, the gospel, the the offer of salvation. We all know enough to be guilty. The question is, will we tell them how to be saved? The gospel message. That's what Paul cares about. That's what he's hoping the Roman church will joyfully partner in. It's what I'm praying we will be doing at Chalmers. So that's Paul's response to Mr. Morally Upright. You're in trouble too. You excuse yourself, but God doesn't. Because God is an utterly impartial judge. And everyone, including you, has failed what they know of his standards. But it's high time to step back and think, why is Paul telling us about this guy? And, and the answer to that is, it depends who you are. So, so as I said at the start, there may be a few people inside the building who actually would fall into this category. This isn't a cartoon character. This is, this is, there are real people who would say, I know that some of humanity is, is doing evil things and should be judged, but at least I'm not as bad as that. And maybe that's you this morning. And if it is, well, can I implore you not to, not to presume on God's patience by God's righteous standards rather than our biased ones? You are not safe. You are not righteous. We all need to trust in Jesus for forgiveness. If that is you, please chat to me or chat to a Christian friend or or chat directly to your creator and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It would be a great prayer to pray today. But of course, for most of us, that isn't actually us. Most of us do recognize ourselves in chapter 1. And we are leaning on Jesus for righteousness because we know that, that I have no leg to stand on by God's standards. So why is Paul telling us this? Why did he write it to Rome, a church that was doing really well, that was clear on the gospel? How should we respond? Well, there's a couple of ways. The first I'm not going to say much on. I hope that you get a chance to chat together over lunch or this week about the first one more. The first possibility would be to think, um, where does a kind of mini Mr. Morality, Mr. Moral Upright creep into my heart? creep back into my heart, because that's where we all start self-justifying. Where do I spot that kind of, at least I'm not as bad as them, attitude? I actually think it'll be more and more of a temptation as our, as our culture becomes less and less kind of Christian in behavior. We'll be more tempted to, to look at people and, and say, oh, that's whatever it is, that's bad driving. At least I'm not like that. That's bad parenting. At least I'm not like that. That's That's that swearing or whatever is so bad, at least I'm not like that. We'll only continue to appreciate grace, God's gospel of grace, 
if we remember we are exactly like that naturally by ourselves apart from Christ that's exactly what we're like that's why we needed to trust in Jesus why we need to keep trusting Jesus so go on reflecting on that but actually as I've thought about the church in Rome I wonder if Paul's as much telling them this to maintain their gospel perspective on the people around them as he is uh, warning them of self-justification. Does that make sense? Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because he knows that every single person needs it. That's why it's such great news. Power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He, He really believes no one is righteous, not even one. And so the message he has is a universal, wonderful, wonderful message. And I think he wants to, the church in Rome to share that vision and actually to partner him in spreading the gospel to, to places where it hasn't been heard. So let me ask you, those of us who are Christians, let me ask you, are there people you know who are not Christian but who are really good? And how do you think about them? In your mind's eye, do you find it very, very hard to picture them on Judgment Day this side of the aisle to put them on the category of unrighteous evil facing fury if you're like me there will be some people like that friends or family or colleagues maybe their lives do seem pretty together maybe their suppression of God's truth is actually pretty friendly and polite Now I'm a minister, I have loads of people saying, oh, that's wonderful, lovely, good for you. Perhaps they help out of school, perhaps they give to charity, perhaps they babysit, perhaps they bring round parcels without complaining when you're out. I can think of a number of my university friends, actually, who are far more faithful in keeping up with me than I am with them. Lovely people, upstanding members of society, they pay their taxes, they have happy families, they're really warm, they're kind to chat to, they're lovely Is it really true that they are not righteous? Jesse and I have just started meeting our neighbours. They're lovely. Paul says, but they're not righteous. Which means they're in serious trouble when God's judgment does fall. So then, if you're not a Christian here, Paul says a direct warning Living by middle-class norms is not enough. God's righteousness is, is higher than that. But for those of us who are Christians here, we need to think and pray for the people around us. We need, to, we need to think of them as the way that God tells us to, with gospel eyesight. Now, much, much, much more briefly, let's consider the second addressee, Mr. or Mrs. Religiously Active Sam's going to pick up on some of this. You'll see um, chapter 2, verse 17, that um, Paul is addressing a Jew. And we'll have more of this next week, so I'm just going to fly through um, for our last few minutes. Paul is addressing a Jew, and, and particularly a Jew who has the privileges of God's law and God's circumcision. This sidestep is not a moral sidestep, it's a religious sidestep. Look at the things I know, look at the things I do. 
And let me just say, first off, Paul isn't singling out a Jew because he's um, anti-Semitic or racist. I mean, he is a Jew, and chapter 9 of Romans shows that he absolutely loves his king's folk. Um, he, he weeps for those outside of Christ. Um, so it's not anti-Semitism, but, but he's picked Judaism as, as like the cream of possible religions you could discuss. I mean, God's law, God's Old Testament law and circumcision, they're God-given um, signs, God-given standards, given in circumcision, given to Abraham in Genesis, the law given in Exodus. This is the best of religious observance. So if this doesn't cut it, if this doesn't provide an excuse, every other world religion falls under this. I hope that makes sense as we go through. If Paul can show why a Jew outside of Christ has no excuse, then that will be true of a Muslim or a Hindu or a Sikh or a Buddhist or someone who says they're spiritual, or a New Age follower. Any form of religious observation. And the point is very simple. Just as with Mr. Morally Upright, he says, it's not what you know, it's what you do. It's what you actually do. So Jews had God's very law, but it's obedience to that law that counts. Jews had God's mark of circumcision, but it's obedience to that. Um, Obedience to God that matters. And actually, of course it does. Verse 6, do you remember verse 6? I know it was a while ago, but verse 6. He will render, God will render each one according to his works. God is utterly impartial. Everyone gets what they deserve. So it's no good, verses 18, 19, 20, saying that I'm an instructor of the blind, that I know God's standards and I recognize the world around doesn't. The question is, verse 21, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? When you preach against stealing, do you not steal? Those you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You can imagine almost the same conversation I've already had. What? I've never slept with another man's wife. I've never slept with another woman's husband. I'm not a thief. The answer is, you've never thought about it. You've never coveted. But actually, Mrs. Religiously Active, in some ways, the crime here is more serious. Just look at verse 23. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. As you read through the Old Testament, the history of Israel, the Jewish people, is is often one of law-breaking. They dive into the mud of human depravity, like we all do naturally. But the difference is they take God's name with them into the mud. It's a shocking thing, actually. It's counterintuitive. This has is, this is struck me kind of afresh this week, preparing, that being religious doesn't notch you a couple of rungs up the ladder of God's righteousness. I once chatted to a, a Muslim student who said, I know I'm not perfect. Actually, I know I'm not as righteous as God is, 
but it's okay because I do lots of good things which will balance the books. It'll be okay. But it's quite the opposite. It's not that religious observant kind of adds a couple of rungs up. No. What it does is it attaches God's name to my sin. Do you see that? Now God is implicated when one of his followers commits evil. It dishonors his reputation, and that's what's happened with, um, through the Old Testament. The same argument is there for circumcision, but we don't have time to look at it. So judging with just human eyes, many religious followers are mightily impressive. There's commitment, there's seriousness. There might even be a real public morality, a real kindness to others, generosity, charity, etc. But God, who looks on the heart and judges the secrets of the heart, says, verse 28, no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. We could apply Mrs. Religiously Active in the same three ways. And we'll see more of that next week with Sam. But we must not be fooled. Lots of, lots of followers of other faiths are really lovely. I'd encourage us to, to try and get to know people from all sorts of different backgrounds and, and religious, religious beliefs. And as we do, hopefully we'll find lots of them are really lovely. But that doesn't mean they're righteous by God's standards. We can't allow a sidestep. We can't allow it for ourselves. Don't ever think you're okay just because of who you are, what you do. But we can't actually allow it for other people either. Either. Let me close by sharing a story from when um, Jesse and I were visiting Chalmers before, before the job. I think it might have been my interview weekend. Uh, we were up, and we took a drive up um, the, to the observatory, have a look over Edinburgh, kind of see where, where we might be coming. Um, it was a beautiful night. The lights are all kind of twinkling, um, as they do. Uh, and we were starting to chat about what, what might life be like, and it'd be great to walk up hills and that kind of thing. Um, but our, our kind of conversation turned to, to, to kind of think about the people of this city, and it actually became pretty sobering thinking how God looks down on this city and these people every twinkling light presuming there's someone in that building what does God think of them well God's verdict is that no one is righteous not even one there are different ways people wriggle there's the the kind of absolute denial, the letters that are angry. How dare you say that? I disagree with all your standards. Kind of denial. But there's also the sidestep that says, absolutely, you've got to have standards. It's good that God does something about evil people, but at least I'm not one of them. And we prayed that night in the car, and I'll pray in a moment for us at this church family that... um, that we would see the city the way God sees the city. And that we see our friends and our neighbours the way that God sees them. There's only one way to be righteous. It's not by ourselves. I said earlier that 
you wouldn't need to set any chairs on this side of the room because we'd all be over here. And that's right, we would all be over here, but there'd just be one person, one chair, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did live a perfectly consistent, righteous life. He would be sitting on the right side of justice. And wonderfully, he clothes us in his robes of righteousness. As we trust in him, we can join him, be washed clean, be made righteous. It's a wonderful message to share with those around us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are good, that you're not corruptible as a judge, and you're not indifferent as a creator. Thank you that you are good, that you are burningly good, pure, righteous, holy. And we want to acknowledge that by your perfect standards, all of us fall short of your glory. And we want to thank you that you have provided a way for us to be made righteous through Christ. We look forward to seeing more of that in the coming chapters and we pray that you would help our hearts to lean wholly on him and not ourselves. And please, Lord, as we, as we um, look out and um, chat with people all over Edinburgh, please help us to see them the way you see them and so love them enough to speak of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.